2 through to verse 45 this morning. So Mark 10, beginning at verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they, will look on, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and my left is not for me to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, you shall, uh, you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for what we read here in Mark 10. We pray that as we study it together that we would be greatly challenged by these challenging words of Christ. Not challenged in a way that leaves us despondent, but challenged in a way that leaves us hopeful. Hopeful in you, hopeful in the work that you are doing in us, and hopeful that by the Spirit's work we might be able to replicate the attitude and example of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Going into the 2012 Olympics that were held in London, it was a glorious time for Australian swimming, according to the media. We were going to win every single gold medal that was on offer. The poster boy for our swimming team was James the Missile Magnuson. World record holder. Undefeated amazing swimmer, super athlete. If you go back and watch the interviews that he did leading into the 2012 London Olympics, you would think that he would have already won the gold medals by the way he was speaking before even hopping on a plane to fly to London. He considered himself great. He was not going to lose, especially not in the 100 metre swimming meet. He, according to his own words, lost gold by 0.01 of a second. He won the silver medal at the Olympics. But he lost gold by 0.01 of a second. That's less than a fingernail. What made it worse was that an American beat him. 
He beat 62 other swimmers who made it to the Olympics, but as far as he was concerned, he lost. Because in his mind, he was the greatest. And if you're the greatest, you deserve the best, and if you don't have the best, you have lost, you have not achieved what you set out to do. It's failure. We could look at that and say, well, he achieved a lot, but his attitude was, no, I am the best, I cannot be competed with, you can try and compete with me, actually, but I'm just going to wipe the floor with you, and I will claim the gold that is rightfully mine. It's an attitude of greatness, it's an attitude of superiority, and we see it everywhere. I mean, fortunately, it's been 10 years since then. Unfortunately, attitudes haven't changed all that much since that time. We see it in TV, newspaper, all the time. In workplaces, we continually see people pushing for the next promotion. Those subtle conversations with those guys in HR who will be involved in the uh, search for the, the guy who gets promoted of, did you hear about what so-and-so did the other day? The implication being, I didn't do that, therefore I should move up instead of them we see it coming out we see it in homes we see siblings trying to outdo one another and not always in love because one considers himself or herself greater we struggle with this issue of greatness and we see jesus disciples struggle with this issue of greatness as well in mark 9 on the road between places they talked among themselves which one of us is the best and jesus said no that's not what you should be saying how can i serve is what you should be asking What we read last week, verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This idea of greatness has no place for those who follow Christ, but sometimes we learn that lesson slowly and we still struggle to put that into practice. Our reading today, we see James and John asking to be seated at Jesus' left hand and his right hand, and they may have even debated among themselves who got the right hand seat. They ask this in front of the other ten apostles, who we see in verse 41, they they heard this and were displeased. They ask this because they think that they are great enough to be worthy of this honour and have forgotten that Jesus tried to squash this attitude and taught that this attitude should be squashed in chapter 9. We see various views of greatness coming through in this passage and primarily those are what we according to the world's metrics might consider greatness as opposed to what god considers greatness so let's look first at this idea of what men would consider greatness which i think is something we struggle with in various ways it may not be a stated thing it may not necessarily be an acted on thing but i think in our minds we can struggle with this idea that we are We are better than other people in some way, shape or form. Maybe we struggle with this idea of greatness in that we have an overly inflated view of ourselves. But on the other end of the spectrum, maybe we struggle when it comes to discussions of greatness because we consider ourselves so lowly that we could never, ever achieve the things that God promises to his people. We could be in all sorts of places we look at this, but we are going to see what's before us in this passage today. I think we see the overinflated ego more than the overly beaten down. And the overinflated ego comes through, verse 35 to 45 particularly. We have James and John, these two brothers, these sons of Zebedee. They come to Jesus with a request that quite simply is just obnoxious. Teacher, we want you to give us whatever we want. 
I'm not sure if you ever tried to start a conversation like that. But I don't think you're going to get the response that you're hoping for. Give us whatever we want. This is a gutsy thing to ask. And we need to ask ourselves, before we look at this, what has provoked, what has prompted these guys to ask this? All sorts of things could give us the answer for that. Uh, When Jesus called the 12 apostles to him, we saw various things that they were doing. They were fishermen, but we saw, compared to other fishermen, they were quite well off. They owned their own boats, or their father owned the boats. They worked with their father. They'd inherit the family business. So they're better off than the hired hands who are fishermen. So maybe they think that they're not too bad off. Financially, they're in a position to be more prominent. And unlike the tax collectors, theirs was legitimate money. Therefore, Jesus, we were more important before we came to you. We want to stay a little bit more important than these other guys as we go forward. They're also two of the three men who are closest to Jesus. They are two of the three men who saw the transfiguration of Christ, along with Peter. But again, maybe that doesn't explain why at this point in time, these men who are so close to Jesus would ask this now. It's a bold, it's a selfish, it's entirely self-centered, this request, this demand even. Well, verses 32 to 34, I think, give us a little bit of insight. And William Hendrickson speaks about this at at length if you'd like to find out more about this. But we see in verses 32 to 34, Jesus telling of his death and resurrection for the third time. And this is one of the more explicit things about what is going to happen to the Son of Man, which is a title that Jesus has taken from Daniel 7 and attributed to himself. We see that there will be betrayal, there will be a condemnation to death, a deliverance to the Gentiles from the Jewish leaders. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. But I'm not sure how much of that last bit on the third day he will rise again was quite getting through to the disciples at this point in time. But again, maybe that seems like this is an odd time for this request to be coming. Now, if you read this account in Matthew 20, we see the mother of James and John present. I'm not going to go into that today. If you'd like to talk about why Matthew doesn't include it, I have some ideas we can talk about later. But these guys want greatness. Why now? Why try to elevate themselves now? Well, William Hendrickson's onto something when he suggests that James and John are asking this now because he says the iron is hot. If you want to make iron malleable, you wait for it to be heated up and then you strike. Perhaps they consider that Jesus' prediction of his own death has made himself overly vulnerable. This is the time to strike. This is when he is emotionally weak. This is when we can get ahead of the other 10, finally prove that we're better than them. It's not healthy thinking. Now, we don't know for sure that that's why they did this, but it seems quite likely because Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And then verse 35, suggesting an immediate follow-on, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, it seems to be this is what they are doing. It's the opportune moment, so to speak. Jesus and his disciples are heading to Jerusalem. At the start of Mark 11, which takes place in just a a few verses' time, 
we read of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. That starts what is referred to as Passion Week, the week leading up to Christ's death on the cross. The disciples haven't yet grasped what's going on. So when Jesus says, look, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die, again, they don't seem to be hearing the resurrection part of it. They say, well, we need to make the most of this now. We might not get another chance. Jesus might be feeling generous to his friends in light of his imminent death. Let's ask now. We are worth it. They've watched too many L'Oreal ads on TV. Not they had TV. Now we could focus on James and John. As I said before in verse 41, the other disciples, they heard it too. And they were greatly displeased. They were greatly displeased because they seemed to want that too. They were indignant, as some translations put it. If they didn't see themselves as being better than James and John, they'd probably be, okay, fair enough, they deserve it, you should give it to them, Jesus. But they were indignant that they were being looked down upon so badly. They want this too. For Jesus' disciples, for anybody who claims to be following Jesus, this attitude is a tragic attitude to have. Jesus says to them, if, if this is your attitude, you're trying to rule like the Gentiles. The Gentiles who are, who are lords, they lord it over people. Now that there would be a slap in the face to Jews who are struggling with the fact that they are under Gentile oppression. No, we are not like the Gentiles. We are nothing like the Gentiles. You, you don't understand Jesus, but you look at the history of Israel and you look at the leaders that God has raised up. There is Moses who spent 40 years as a shepherd before he shepherded Israel. There is David who his father and brothers forgot about when Samuel came to their house to anoint the next king and they go through all the older brothers and, oh, wait, we do have another one. There's David. The great leaders through the Old Testament, they served God and they served God's people and that is what is missing in the disciples' attitude. They want power because they want power. They did not want the responsibility to serve. They wanted it for themselves. They want the gold medal. And if they can't get the gold medal, they have lost. It's a sad thing to see. And it would be a sad thing for us in searching our hearts to find that attitude within ourselves as well, something that perhaps we need to consider in prayer. But contrasting to this, though, and we already touched on this a little bit, we see what God considers to be greatness. According to the apostles at this point, greatness is self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-glorification, just self. Put yourself out there. The second model of greatness is embodied to us by Jesus. Jesus who is great and he shows what that greatness actually is. He shows true leadership. So we might think, as I said earlier on, that if you start a conversation with give me what I want, we're not going to get what we want. But cast your mind back just a few chapters to Mark chapter 6. 
In that chapter there, we see here a contrast between Jesus' greatness in leadership as opposed to Herod, who was called Herod the Great. In Mark 6, Herod's sister-in-law's, who's acting like his wife's daughter, danced before him and pleased him. And he said, you know what? I'll give you anything you want. Even up to half the kingdom will give me the head of John the Baptist. There was a foolishness to that leadership. Jesus shows a, a great wisdom, a great leadership here. Uh, and it's a huge contrast to what we would consider great according to the standards of men. Again, Herod was called Herod the Great, but he showed incredible foolishness in how he responded to these sorts of things and made promises of just giving whatever people wanted. It's important to look at Christ as a model because so often we, we might hear the, the phrase imitation is the highest form of flattery. We very often model ourselves, our words, our actions, our dress on those we consider great. We are shown here the ultimate model of greatness in this passage and that is Jesus who is God. Jesus who is God but was also humble. Uh, verse, chapter 10 verse 45, the last verse that we read today. For even the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God himself came to earth not to be served, but to serve. He is God. He is worthy of all the accolades. He is entitled to every bit of self-promotion that he would want to do because he is perfect and holy and just. But that is not what we see in the example of Christ. He is worthy to receive every single bit of service that we could ever offer to him. And it wouldn't even come close to being what he is worthy of receiving, but instead we have Jesus turning the tables. He came to serve. Now, maybe we look at this and say, well, talk can be cheap. Talk can be cheap, but Jesus never is, never was, and never will be cheap. We see this backed up in his actions time and time again. And it's important that what we say matches up with what we, or what we say we believe matches up with what we do. James makes that abundantly clear in his letter. Faith without works is dead. Fortunately, Jesus, we, we, we have somebody who doesn't only say things, but he demonstrates the right things. He, he does tell James and John that he can't give the place on his left and his right hand to, to anyone because that's not for him to do so. That is for our Heavenly Father to, to determine. It's not stated explicitly, but it's implied that I think the Father's already assigned those seats. We see Christ's humility in that, that he doesn't try and take authority that he doesn't have. doesn't try and take a role that doesn't belong to him. Even the very fact that Jesus and his disciples right now, while they have this discussion, are on the road to Jerusalem. That we're a few verses short of the week leading up to Christ's death on the cross shows his humility. He knew what was ahead of him 
but he did not shy away. He knew the cost that would be there for him was enormous, but he still served the Father. What we see with Jesus is not a do as I say and not as I do sort of teacher. We see a do as I do and say, man. Throughout the Gospels, we see occasions over and over again where Christ's humility has shone through beyond what we've already covered there. He said, let the little children come to me. I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find another Jewish rabbi who would allow that to happen. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, which was a job assigned for the lowest household staff. But the master himself washed the feet of those close to him. He shows his wisdom in contrast to Herod the Great, and he shows his humility. And in this, he shows us the true greatness is found in serving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Really kicks into gear with what Jesus is demonstrating here. He is modeling what faithful obedience to God looks like, and it is being being obedient. It's being humble. It is putting others before ourselves. And it's at that point, though, that we need to take a bit of care when it comes to putting others before ourselves. If you take that away from this sermon, that is a good thing to take away, but that is not the end goal. That is just morality. And Jesus always takes us deeper than morality. There is morality in the teachings of Christ, but that morality is founded on spiritual truths about God. This is not just to say, go and do nice things for people. That's not just to say that. We should do nice things for people where we have opportunity to serve them. But that's not the end goal here. It's about God leading us to obey him. And then him equipping us to be a blessing to those around us. And as we look at this, we cannot ignore something which is very, very big in this passage, both 32 to 34, and what Jesus says to James and John, is that there is actually a cost to greatness. The disciples, they wanted a greatness that came at no cost to themselves. They just wanted to be given. But there is a cost to this greatness that God would want us to have. It's a price the disciples didn't really want to know about, but is undeniably there. In John chapter 3, verse 14, which is another place in the Gospels where Christ predicts his death and resurrection, he says that in order to be glorified, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Not lifted up on the shoulders of adoring crowds, but lifted up on the cross to die for the sins of those the Father would give to him. There is a cost in Christ's greatness, which is his life. He likewise indicates the cost of the greatness would in some measure, not the fullness, but in some measure be extended to those who follow after him. We see this when Jesus asks James and John if they're able to drink the cup that he's going to drink, we baptise with the baptism with which he'll be baptised with. Which I think that's the first time I've read this publicly without stumbling all over all the baptisms. When Jesus is asking James and John, and the other apostles who can hear all of this, 
if they can drink the cup that he's going to drink. We see here an Old Testament reference to the wrath of God. This is an Old Testament reference to the wrath of God. It says to them, can you drink this cup? They say, yeah, we can do it. They don't, they're not aware of what they're saying. They don't know what they're saying. Jesus says to them, you know what, you, you, you can't actually drink it. But Jesus, when he died upon the cross, when he hung on that cross, he did drink that cup down to his very last dregs. There is nothing left for those who love God. The wrath of God is turned away by Christ. I know we, we use small words in sermons these days, but propitiation is one we should all be familiar with. Propitiation was a type of sacrifice where the aroma was sent up to God as a pleasant thing and it turned away, it shielded through turning away the, God's people from the wrath of God. That is what Christ went through. He is our propitiation sacrifice. He turned away the wrath of God from us because he took the wrath of God upon himself. It wasn't watered down. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He drank the bitter cup that was reserved for us. We have sung that line in many songs. This is what it's talking about. He drank the bitter cup, the wrath of God that was reserved for us. Now we think about the, the baptism with which Jesus is going to be baptized with. It's fairly likely Jesus is talking here about a baptism of fire, especially when we've got the context of predicting his death and resurrection. Now we know that James was not crucified, James was beheaded. And John was not crucified either, John lived to a ripe old age. But John lived to a ripe old age while being sent to the slave island of Patmos. It wasn't a comfortable old age that he got to. So what did Jesus say when he said, you shall indeed drink the cup that I drink of and with the baptism I am baptised, you shall be baptised. How do we understand this? Well, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 tells us that the elect, that is those who have been chosen by the Father, which does include James and John. We might look at these guys and get frustrated by them now, but these guys were saved from sin. They went on to grow in faith and become amazing men used by God. Now, they've already done some wonderful things in service to God. We have to be fair to these guys. Ephesians 4, 1, 4 and 5 tells us that the elect were in Christ before the foundation of the world began. If we were in Christ, which God cannot lie, if we were in Christ and we were crucified with Christ, we died with Christ when he died. We were buried with Christ when he was buried. We were raised with Christ when he rose from the tomb. We ascended with Christ into the heavenlies when he ascended into the heavenlies as our representative. These things are affirmed many places in Scripture. So when Christ endured the penalty of hell and he came out the other end victorious, there's a sense in which with him as our representative, we have done the same. This is how we do indeed drink the cup that Christ drank of and the baptism 
that he was baptised with, we all are baptised, not physically, but in the spirit. And this is why, for those of us who love God, we have complete confidence that God will never send us to hell because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, which is what Romans 8.1 teaches us. There, there, there is a cost to the greatness that Christ encourages us to have. The cost is not just putting others above ourselves. The cost is, as we saw last week, being willing to give every single thing that we have in faithful service to God, in being willing to take up our cross and follow him, in suffering persecutions just as Christ suffered persecution. The cost may be high. But even when we go through those times of hurt and those times of suffering, we should still live in a way that is pleasing to God. Jesus, in the most painful situation he ever found himself, hanging on the cross to die, quoted scripture. Psalm 22 is what Jesus said when he hung on the cross to die. He didn't say, oh, this is hurting too much. God, I've just got to do this bit on my own. No, he, he, he served God right to the very end. Whoever, must, who, or whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And that is where we find the challenge. To live as servants of those around us. We might be able to say that we do things to to put others above ourselves. And if we can say that, praise God for that. But as we saw last week, we can sometimes do that for ourselves rather than for Christ's sake and his gospel. It is a temptation for us, no doubt, to walk out those doors when the service finishes and start doing things and saying, we have put other people before ourselves. We have done it. I have achieved greatness through service. But if we put them first without without the the recognition of God in our lives, without recognizing that we are serving God and recipients of his grace, and but for the grace of God, we would be far worse off than anyone else. We are doing it for the wrong reasons. If we try to achieve greatness the way the world around us wants us to, as we see with James and John and then the reaction of the other ten, we're only going to put ourselves at odds with other people. Ten years later, James Magnuson's interviews still don't win him any friends. The greatness on off when we follow God the way that he wants us to follow him in humility serving others and with the desire to love others, to put them first, not in a way that it reflects on our goodness but on God's goodness, then that is where we must challenge ourselves and where we should challenge each other. Greatness in and of itself is not wrong. Greatness God's way is hard. But again, as we saw last week, the rewards are simply enormous 
and wonderful beyond words. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We know that at times when we read your word and we find ourselves challenged about our attitude, it can be a hard and painful thing. But this is a good thing for us. So we pray, Lord God, that we would follow Christ's example, that we would indeed be humble and that how we act would be reflective of you, how you lived and the work that you have done in us. We need your help to do this, so help us, God. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.